На трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона Разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. This week we've got a packed show with a new managerial incoming in the RPL at Dynamo, a whole host of European fixtures, Rostov's crazy transfer market, and a review of both the senior and under-21 Spornaya side's recent games. Joining me this week once again is Richard Pike. Good evening, everybody. How are we all? And David Sanson. Hello, hello. I'm not too bad. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, I'm not too bad either. We'll be later on joined by a special guest, Ben Jackson, from the Belgian Football Podcast, to discuss things all Bruges ahead of the game of Zenit next midweek. Now, the international break first, though, took centre stage once again over the weekend. This time, Russia played three games in just six days. First up was a friendly, a 2-1 loss against Sweden at the VEB Arena, which we covered last week. And then in the Nations League, Russia drew with Turkey 1-1 and 0-0 with Hungary, both at the VTB Arena. Now, Russia still currently tops their group, but could have wrapped it all up, if not for, frankly, a pair of quite disappointing results, given their form over the past few years. Now, throughout the game, Sanya Sobolev clinched his first goal for Russia, while Anton Marantia continued to shine in a first-team role for Sbonaya in the absence of his brother Sasha and Alexander Golovin. Now, Richard, what did you think about the games in general? And Perhaps do you think that Stani Chachesov's penchant for defensive and ageing squad selections has finally caught up with him? I think so, yes. Um, it's I didn't see the games, but... Um... Yeah, the results are not great, are they? And you've got to ask yourself the question now, is it time for some uh, freshening up of this team? Um, you know, you see some of the squad selections and Zhirkov, Yuri Zhirkov still getting into the team, um, Kudryashov. You just wonder, don't you, um, is it time now to freshen it up a little bit? Um, not too not too good results, no. It, um, it has to be stressed. Um, it, it's a real missed opportunity too, isn't it? Because... They'd have won at least one of those games. They'd have been looking in a great position to, you know, with a win and a draw in their final two games, you know, clinch top spot and get a seeding for, you know, the 2022 World Cup qualification. Um, so, yeah, it has to be stressed. That's not a good pair of results. And, yeah, maybe coming into November when they have another Nations League game and a friendly against Moldova, maybe that's then the time maybe to look at freshening up a little bit. I, I mean, we know Churchesov is quite, you know, obviously... You know, he's, he's a little bit stubborn sometimes with his squad selection. <laughs> I'm beginning to think, you know, is it not time yet for a bit of a, a freshen up? Um, but I've got to be honest, I, in, I must say, though, the Nations League this week, it was, in general, a bit of a struggle, wasn't it? Cause a lot of the games around the place were not particularly entertaining. I mean, Denmark versus England, it was only only decided by a penalty. Yeah. France drew nil-nil with, with uh, Portugal. And it does make you wonder with the Nations League, doesn't it? Is Are the games a bit drab because the sides are quite equal and the same you know you're not getting you know at least if you get two sides of varying quality playing against each other you you, you sometimes at least get goals and some entertainment whereas you know it had a sides too evenly matched by pairing up it's a good idea in theory by UEFA but but yeah it just seemed a bit like I mean obviously um I didn't see the games but it, it, it seems a bit like the team's a bit too matched up too even um, but yeah, I think a freshen up in a couple of areas could be on the cards for the next round of international matches. Yeah, I think the Nations League suffers from that weird middle syndrome where 
neither is it really a proper tournament nor a friendly. So a lot of teams are quite defensive. Well, because they don't want to lose. It's it's it because it it matters quite a bit in terms of potential playoffs, getting in Group A again, and see then the next year, and. But it's also at the end of the day, it's 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 like a, a posh friendly where experimentation does happen. Lots of players who don't really play together end up playing. I mean, well, in most teams apart from Russia, because it's the same squad all the time. But I digress. Uh, and to be quite honest, I agree because most of the teams are actually very evenly matched. It makes for good development. It means that players can come in and be getting experience at young ages or whatever at, at very raw periods in the in the career and get good and proper experience but because of that it's really not a spectacle to watch whatsoever and with Russia in particular the squad in my opinion is a big issue with the current problems that the team play now I don't want to over accentuate these because they are still top of the group in what is a pretty solid group and pretty close group but the squad is too old and most simply are not good enough. You've got players who are either not playing for the club or completely out of form. Yuri Zhirkov's at 37 now, and he's one of 11 players in the original squad over the age of 30. Now, of course, there is the other side of the coin of this, and there is a shining light at the end of the tunnel. Now, Russia under-21s, led by Mikhail Galaktionov, have just qualified for next summer's European under-21 championship with arguably what is the most prosperous generation in recent memory. And without naming all of the players right now, essentially the squad's brimming with talent and regular RPL starters, as all who listen would know. Now, over the weekend, they defeated Estonia 4-0, Luzhniki, thanks to a brace from Fedor Chalov, a goal by Konstantin Kachayev and an own goal. And then they dispatched Latvia 4-1 quite easily at the Arena Kimki, with another Kachayev goal, Followed by others from Pasha Maslov, Daniela Savoy, and Alexander Lomovitsky. So, David, you watched the under 21 games. So, how do you think the young side fared? I did. Um, obviously, two easy games there to round out, round out the group. Um, in the last international break, they, they played Poland and lost. It was their, it was their first um, loss of the whole campaign. Um, but, you know, they needed, they needed two wins here, and they got a big helping hand um, as Serbia. Um, took some points off Poland, who were their nearest team, uh, to challenge them for the top spot. And they were, all they had to do then for was uh, go out and beat Latvia in the final game. Um, and yeah, both, both games were comfortable. Um, the Estonia game was really comfortable. You know, they were, they were cruising. Um, the the Siska boys, Tiknizian, Kuchayev, Chalov, Obliakov, they were all fantastic in that game. Um, I think um, every goal was scored by a Cisco player up in the own goal. Um, and two of them were assisted by Cisco players as well. Um, so, yeah, they, they were all on top form that day. Uh, you know, it was a strange one at right back. Right back seems to be the, the questionable position right now. Russ Kazov obviously wasn't called up because of his lack of game time of late. Um, so you had Alton Golubev playing there for, for Mufa, who's obviously normally a midfielder. Uh, but he did a good job at right back. Um, so yeah, the first game was solid, and then uh, Matt Vesafonov obviously got called up to the national team because uh, Guillaume was out. So um, next match, the, the only real change was Maximenko came in and started in goal. Um, Safonov had been the first choice goalie for the under twenty ones for for most of the uh, the qualifying campaign. Um, trickier game, you know, they still had had the lead at half time, but just one nil. Um, but but they took control in the second half. 
Um, yeah, you know, they got Yevgeny scored off a free kick and then they got a goal, the next goal very soon afterwards from uh, Lesevoy. And at that point, they sort of relaxed a bit, made a few subs. Um, we saw Makarov from Rubin come on and make his, his debut at that level. So, you know, the squad's still improving with players like Makarov coming through. Um, so, yeah, they, they did a good job. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a good generation of players we've got there who, who are going to go and play in the Euros next summer. Now, on to that, playing in the Euros next summer, this current under-21 squad is probably not far behind the first team in terms of current talent in many of which you could argue would be regulars in the first team. But in Russia, traditionally, large swathes of players do all graduate from the first team together, such as the 2008 generation, as they are known as, who all graduated from a highly successful 2001 to 2003 side with Arshavin, Pavlichenko, Berezutsky brothers, Akinfeyev, Malafeyev, Ignashevich, Pogrebniak, Oleg Kuzmin and Denis Kolodin, all featuring in this time frame. And then if you fast forward to 2008, half of the current side actually played, including uh, Zhenayev, Shunin, Kudlyashov, Smolov, uh, Ayanov, all featured together, as well as the Komborov twins, Viktor Faizulin, and so on. So you do see in Russia, traditionally, this big batch of players come through. Now, David, you mentioned the Euros next summer, the under-21 Euros. Do you expect this to happen soon, this big batch of players to graduate from the under-21s into the first team, perhaps after this under-21 Euros? And is this why there seems to be such parity between the two sides right now? Yeah, there definitely be, seems to be some preference from you know the higher-ups to, to keep that group together. You know, um, only, only three of the squad, uh, Safonov, Chalov and... Uh, Obliakov, who've had, have had call-ups to the first team, uh, and the bulk of the squad, therefore, uh, you know, they're not they're not all really young. The the bulk of the squad are 21, 22, a couple of twenty year olds, and you know, not many younger than that. Um, so once the tournament's over, barely any of those guys are going to be even eligible for the under twenty ones. So at that stage, it's time for them to be called up to the senior team and step it up, or, um, you know go into that stage of nothingness where they're going to get potentially left out for the elderly players or, or are they going to be given the chance, you know, with Churchill in charge, in charge you're going to think, you know, we're going to keep seeing Ionov playing instead of Lestavoy, for example. Um, you know, granted, he, he's given Mostavoy his chance. You know, Mostavoy played in every every game during the international break. Um, you know, his first, his first caps for the national side, younger player at least. Um so yeah, you'd expect a good chunk of that squad to graduate, and you know the the top players at least. You know we, we'd be expecting the two goalkeepers, Safonov, Maximenko. We'd be expecting Deveev to probably challenge Oblikov. Obviously, he's been called up. Chalov's been called up. Chalov will have a hard task considering Russia's preference for a big man up front, um, like Zuba or Sobolev, who seemed like a, a ready-made replacement almost. So um, you know, there's plenty of guys there who are who are fit to challenge. Um, and ready to take the place of the of the old guys in the squad. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many of them get given the chance. Yeah, certainly. Of course, that's the idea that all these lads get put together is predicated upon theory more than anything and hope. And, and I do hope, I agree, that a lot of these younger lads get the, get the opportunity sooner rather than later because there are just too many players in the first team who are, well past it. Now, Richard, do you want to come in on the under-21s here? 
Yeah, just um, just also offer my congratulations to them for qualifying for the Euros. Um, it's a fantastic achievement, and I certainly echo your thoughts that this is one of the one of the strongest um, under twenty one sides that they've had. Uh, their record in this tournament of qualifying for it in recent years has not been great. So for them to qualify and to qualify quite comfortably in the end, really, with only one loss from 10 games is an um, impressive um, testament to Galatianov and his squad. And um, I do concur that I think a decent chunk of this squad will graduate to the senior team after after the Euros. And um, I think, yeah, whilst you could make the argument that in some areas, the under-21 squad is just as strong as the senior squad at the moment. I think it makes sense to keep this group together because the more that they get playing with each other, the more become become familiar with each other's game. And then when they all and then after the Euros, like like David was saying, you can then bring them all in, um, which I think will be a good move because often the big problem with international football is because you only play it every now and again. You know, it's difficult to get the same fluidity as in club football. Whereas if you get all this group playing together and you can bring them in in batches, like not just one or two, but four, four five, six in, in a row, all getting called up to the senior squad afterwards, there's that extra level of continuity. So, yeah, no, um, I think um, we'll see that after the Euros. I think um, definitely seeing one or two positions, some reinforcements. And also, you know, Igor Diveyev has still got to come back into that side as well. So that'll strengthen the defence even further and possibly even solve the problematic right-back situation, like you were saying. They could put Maslow there. So, um, yeah, I um, want to say, uh, extend my congratulations to the under-21s and to uh, Galatianov. Yes, absolutely. It's surprising that when you look at the long-term results of the under-21s qualifying for this competition, this is actually the first time that they've done so since the 1998. And David wrote a piece for the for the website, which went up, which was published uh, yesterday. That uh, just going into more detail about the under-21s and and the the composition of the team and and how it's their golden generation and. It has to be Russia's golden generation because this is the probably the best batch of youngsters we've had since 1990 when uh, a variety of players like Igor Shalomov, Andrei Piernitsky, Alexander Mostovoy, Andrei Kanchelskis, Andrei Bal, uh, Igor Kalivanov all came together at the same time. And that was Soviet Union. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, this has to be the greatest concentration of under-21 talent we've seen in Russia. So the horror few are doing something right, at least. Uh, so to move back to the RPL, um, there's been a little bit of a crazy breaking news event in Rostov in just the last hour who have actually confirmed five different transfers in less than an hour officially. Uh, so to work through them, first of all, the transfer of Alexei Ayanov to Krasnodar on a three-year deal for a fee. And then secondly, that promising defender Dima Chistyakov has joined Zenit on loan. And then three incomings. Uh, going the other way from Zenit to Rostov is Denis Trentiev in a permanent deal. And then the last two transfers are a pair of Swedes, young Swedes actually. Uh, 18-year-old Armin Gigovic and 21-year-old Pontus Almqvist, who were signed from Helsingborg and Norrköping respectively. And that's reportedly in the Russian press as a combined fee of 7 million euros both of which in five-year deals. So they're obviously ones for the future. But David, these two Swedish lads are supposed to be highly rated. Do you think it could be possibly with one eye on the now as well as looking ahead? Well, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's been Rostov's sort of modus operandi, hasn't it, for a while to, to go out and, especially in Scandinavia, try and pick up some younger players. Obviously, they've done it in the past with Antika Dunic and they've done it in the past with Norman. Um 
and you're, you know, I, I have to admit, I hadn't heard of either of these two guys um, before before today. Um, I've done some as much as I can to quickly research both players. You know, Gigovic is seems to be the more highly rated of the two and the younger of the two. Um, and it looks like potentially they, they could be preparing for Norman to leave uh, the club come January. You know, he said that he said it over the international break himself. Um, you know, in an interview when he was with the Norwegian squad that he, he's ready to take the next step. And obviously in the summer window, we, we RFN had word from the agents uh, of Norman. They were like, they were looking to move him on once they dropped out of Europe. Obviously it didn't happen. Um, so he'll be staying, sticking around for now, but you know, that, that departure seems, seems imminent. So, um, so yeah, it, it's no surprise to see it happen. You know, Rostov, you know, they, they just lost Yonov. So the other guy, Amquist seems like maybe a direct replacement for him. Um, but, you know, they, they'd made so many sales already this, this window with, you know, money coming in for Shmorodov and then, uh, Yonov on top of that, uh, whoever else they'd sold, I forget. Um, so they they, had, they obviously had money knocking around it, and you know they've gone out and invested it. And if they can do what they've done with players like Shamorodov or what they're going to do with Norman, who you know both of those came in for probably less than three million combined, Shamorodov went out for almost eight million euros, and Norman's probably going to go out for ten million euros plus. You know, if they can do that again with these two guys, then then they're going to be starting to work on a nice business model of um, of bringing and developing players who are ready to make the next step up in Europe. Um, so, yeah, promising signs that they're still being managed quite well, even though we were questioning their their transfer window um, for most of the summer, we're considering their lack of activity and then uh, sales. But hopefully, uh, hopefully it works out for them. Yeah, and this Rostov experiment, maybe not an experiment anymore, but a proven track record, to be frank, of looking towards the Scandinavian market has really went on for quite a few years now, three or four years. And it's within the last, this period that they kind of switched tact from looking towards once the uh, uh, Russian players sort of in their twilight of their career and, and foreign stars in the twilight of their career. And the, the, the switch tact to bringing in young foreign players, like you said, from developing players from developing European leagues and Scandinavia has been a particular focus point. Uh, Sveri Ingus and Ragnar Sigurdsson, uh, Vidar Kjartansson, I mean, on just on top of that, the, the two or three that you already mentioned as well as, it just shows that these developing European leagues is a very good point, standing point for teams like Rostov, like Ufa, like smaller RPL teams to find a bargain out there, a real bargain. And it's hopefully more good scouting from Rostov's point of view. But one of the interesting moves, in my opinion, is the departure of Dima Chistyakov. Now he's joined Zenit on loan. Of course, Chistyakov was one of Rostov's best performers last season and was waylaid by injury until very recently. But I think it could be a very shrewd signing. Richard, what what do you think of the move in general? I'm with you on that, James. I think it is a very shrewd sign. This, um, I think it was pretty clear that even though you know a creative midfield player was in, like Wendell was needed, I think as well as then it also probably lacked a bit of depth at centre in central defence. You know, because at times this season, when you know they've got Lovren and Rakitsky obviously as the starting two, but then behind that they've only really got Danilo Prokhor, who at 19, whilst he's shown some talent so far. 
you know, he's still, you know, not really be ready, not really ready yet to be starting on a frequent basis in case, you know, one of Rakitsky or Lovren got injured. Um, you know, they've had to play Douglas Santos there at, at centre-half on a couple of occasions and he's done all right there, but it's it's always nice to have a third centre-half and, you know, especially with, you know, them having to play in three different competitions. So they've had to thicken up their squad in other areas by signing Kuzhaev and Vendel for the midfield and I think thickening up, thickening up the defence with um, Chishchakov is um, a smart move. I think he actually was at Zenit originally as a youth team player, I think. And he, um, he obviously then had to go away and he's, played at Tamboff and Rostov and last year at Rostov he was really really good in the first 22 games of the year when Rostov were flying high playing well you know first 20 odd games of the year sorry when they were doing well flying high in the league he was um, a pivotal part of that and then he got injured towards the end of the year and that's when the challenge sort of fell off a cliff uh, well they still managed to finish fifth but the you know they were pushing up towards the Champions League places even you know in third place so no I think this is a smart signing from Zenit he's not going to displace either Lovren or Rakitsky but it's just one of those Russian players as well who's useful to have around in the squad. Um, it sorts out a gap in the squad. He's a reliable performer. And um, yeah, I think it's a nice shrewd um, piece of business from Zenit. You know, it, it, it thickens up the squad a little bit in a key area. So, um, and yeah, it's a trial before you buy option. They've got an option to buy. I think it's around 4 million euros if they exercise the purchase option. So he if he does a good enough job in the um, cup competitions and after the European games, then yeah, he he's, you know, be a good acquisition relatively cheap for them so um and it pans out their squad so yeah i'm in agreement with you it's a um, very shrewd move and what isn't a shrewd move i must admit i don't think is the the transfer of alexey anov to to krasnodar it's what's reported to be a three-year deal well it is it is a three-year deal and reportedly for a couple of million now that's just absolutely crazy from krasnodar and it smacks of panic buying to be frank they know they need depth in their squad. They're stuck at eight with the foreigner limit, unable to move others, unable to sign people that would like to bring in. And obviously they brought in Yonov for the for his experience and to fill a body in the weekend squads after Champions League games. Now, last week and two weeks ago, I implored them to do exactly this. Fine. Alexei Yonov is not going to be much use, I'm afraid. He's well past his best. He's performed terribly for Rostov this season. Only scored his first goal the weekend before the international break and has been really poorly underperforming. It's just absolute madness that you see the 33-now-year-old Yonov available and fine, but then you've got Anton Zinkovsky banging them in for Krilia and the Finnael. Played excellent, was the one of the highest assist creators in the RPL last season. Reportedly going to Kimki for five hundred thousand euros. I don't know how a, a progressive and well-run club like Krasnodar can look at those two transfers and think, "Oh, you're not for a couple of million. Is definitely the one you want to go to." So I'm not particularly fond of that one, and from Krasnodar's point of view, but for Rostov to get money for a thirty-two-year-old is is Quite frankly, very good. Richard, what do you think about Yonov? Yeah, I'm in total agreement. I'm really shocked that they've gone for him. Um, I think Zinkovsky would have been a better purchase. You know, more long-term at 24, Zinkovsky. Did very well in the relegated team last season. It would have made much more sense too. You know, he's Zinkovsky's not going to start all the time for Krasnodar. They have a decent amount. You know, their starting wingers are, are very good in Vanderson and Klaassen. But, you know, as a backup option, you know, somebody to come off the bench, I'd... I'd been more infused by him than he owned off. Yeah, I think I actually think Rostov have done very well. You know, they've offloaded Shamuradov for eight million. 
two couple of million for Rion off, you know, big wages off the payroll and you know that the young uh, one of the young Swedish guys that they've signed, you know, he's a right winger, so he'll come straight in for Rion off. So yeah, I think in a way Rostov have I think have done a good deal there and um, it's baffling from Krasta there. I totally agree with you, James. Baffling transfer that <laughs> I must say I have been a little bit harsh on Ionov, but I I can never ever get behind a, a deal like that going for the older grizzled veteran when such an exciting young talent who could be the backbone of a club for such a long time is available for, for frankly nothing. Now yeah, if we're going to move away from to, to move away from the RPL is moving back to the UCL is the Champions League returns on Tuesday and Zenit host Club Bruges in St. Petersburg. Uh, to discuss the visitors, we're joined this week by Ben Jackson of the Belgian football podcast Next Up on RFN. Good evening, Ben. Good evening. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm quite excited. Looking forward to the game tomorrow for those listening. This is the night before a regular recording and Belgium, England and Russia are all just about to kick off. So pretty exciting night, actually. And Speaking of Belgium, the national team have been a bogey side of late for Russia. And well, to be frank, they've been that good. They're probably most international teams bogey side right now. But how is the game progressing domestically in Belgium? Are any of the top sides ready to compete in the UCL? Uh not really, <laughs> to be honest. Like that's kind of like <laughs> a basic answer. I think obviously Bruges are the they're clearly the best team in Belgium and they're the closest, I'd say, to being ready to compete. Like They'll be competitive, but they're not ready, in my opinion, to kind of push further than the group stages. Um, the other team that were up for qualification, I guess you could say, were Ghent, and they were absolutely destroyed by Dinamo Kiev. They just looked a level below. I think they looked like a Europa League team, maybe even worse. So they're kind of like they finished second place in the league last year and they just weren't anywhere near. Um, I guess another side that listeners would have heard about would have been Anderlecht and they used to be one of the bigger teams in Belgium, but financial mismanagement, all that sort of stuff, they're, I'd probably say, two, three years away from actually getting into Europe at the moment. Their squad's just not ready for it at all. So, yeah, the rest of the bigger teams in Belgium are kind of like Europa League level, I'd say. But Blues are definitely like the only team that I'd kind of want to see in the Champions League at the moment because the other yeah. ones just wouldn't be as competitive and it'd be a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a struggle for them, that's for sure. Yeah, that's a little bit funny because I mean, with with no disrespect to Belgium for Belgian football domestically, it's probably around the similar level of Russian in that it's the sort of Group B we like to call it, RFN of of European leagues, where it's it's nowhere near the level of the top five. And it, interestingly, Russia's the opposite, where we have one or two teams who we probably think could compete quite well in the Champions League, but then everybody else would really struggle. Uh, in the Europa League this year, Cisco went straight through to the the group stages, of course, but Dinamo and Rostov both lost in the playoffs to Lokomotiv Tbilisi and Maccabi Haifa, like teams that you, on paper, you would probably expect them to beat, but they were just terribly underperforming. So it's interesting to hear that little dichotomy where there's only really one at that level where, I mean, Zenit are probably, you would expect them to get through the group stages if they get a good draw, but uh, it doesn't go much further down than that, to be frank. But those at Zenit media teams have called this group a, a very Zenit group, where by in this they mean that both a little bit aggrieved at not getting a bigger name tie without any disrespect to any of the sides that they have drawn, but it's also a quite an even group. And as we've seen often in recent years from Zenit's perspective, like last season, they've had a group where 
that could feasibly finish anywhere between first and fourth. And you would expect probably most of the teams in that group to do so. Now, in my opinion here, it's clear Dortmund top. And then it's quite close for the other three who could get behind them. It could qualify in second. Now, Bruges have never qualified beyond the group stages in the modern Champions League, if I'm, if I'm correct in that. And Zenit see Bruges is, to be honest, eminently winnable games, especially at home with the home record. So, Ben, do, how do you expect Bruges to perform? Could they get through to the knockouts? And do you think that Zenit being disrespectful, perhaps, in thinking that way? I'm not sure. Yeah, when the draw was made, I kind of saw that very similar style group to what Zenit had last season. Like, you've got those Lazio, Zenit and Bruges who could all beat each other. I think Bruges are probably the weakest side of those three, for sure. I think they've got less, like, Champions League experience. But I expect them to still be competitive in every single game. Like, last year, they had a quite a tricky group again. But they managed to finish third, got into the Europa League. And that included a point away at Real Madrid where I don't know if people watched that game. It was quite a ridiculous game. They went 2-0 up and they really should have won, but then they went down to 10 men and like ended up 2 all. So they shown signs last year, but they didn't actually win a single game. They got three points and Galatasaray was just useless. So they were just like finished above them, which was quite nice. But yeah, I think I think they'll be competitive. We were speaking about it on our podcast and just in our chats the other day. Like We just don't really know what to expect from Lazio. They're kind of like this team that we're yeah. like, they could be the team that almost like pipped Juventus last season, but they could also be the team that out after the um, the COVID break was just absolutely terrible, really, and just completely fell away. So like, and I've also got this like kind of sneaky suspicion that Dortmund are going to throw one away. And I feel like if Bruges, I just feel like it could be Bruges. I feel like they're the sort of team that Dortmund just randomly lose to in Germany, like a similar sort of level. So yeah, I expect them to at least win one game maybe at home or even they I think they could win away depending on how they set up uh, for all the games but if they can make it into the Europa League I think fans should probably be quite happy with that I think as well as for Belgium they need kind of wins for the coefficient rankings and stuff like that so yeah I'm hoping they finish third but I'm not massively optimistic about their chances yeah I think that's quite understandable to be honest and I, I agree entirely that Lazio are the are the dark horse in this and that I also don't have a clue in how they would perform. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it is for me Dortmund and then any of the other three. Of course, last time Zanit played Dortmund, they they actually lost 5-4 on aggregate and won the second leg uh, in in Dortmund. So it, and Zanit are one of those teams where they could easily get trounced 5-0 off Dortmund and beat them 5-0. It's just whatever, how it goes their way on the day. Bruges' current manager is Philippe Clement, and I believe he's a he is a club legend at Bruges. Yeah, no, yeah, he's one of their like their club legends, and he's actually only been in the job for a season. Um, oh. so yeah, he had a pretty good start. They were way ahead in the league when it was cut off last year, so he's certainly been a success. Uh, and that's even without they've kind of really struggled. Probably kind of the opposite to Zenit. They haven't. They don't really have a striker. That's been one of their biggest problems. So he's kind of molded this team and built this team and like playing this style of football without kind of like an out and out goal scoring striker so the wingers are really important to score the midfielders are really important to score uh he likes to play like a a 4-3-3 formation domestically they like to push up they like to play on the front foot they like to press I don't know how he's going to fare in a Champions League obviously he had success 
uh, last year in that Madrid game and a couple of the other games, but he didn't manage to win a game. But I don't think he'll ever be judged on what happens in the Champions League. I think it's domestically where he's going to be judged. So, yeah, I'll be, I'm interested to see, because you have, like, obviously there's kind of like a trend of these club legends being put in charge of teams, and then mm. quite a few of them are just completely rubbish, whereas he's clearly not. <laughs> he clearly, like, he's got managerial experience from before. I think he was manager of Inc. a few years ago and stuff. So, yeah, a good first season in charge. Slightly more difficult this season. They Again, they're still looking for that striker, and I don't think he's quite worked out who his striker is yet. There's a couple of options, but, yeah. No, he's, he's done a very good job so far, and I think he should definitely be there for the end of this season. Yeah, it's interesting you say that with the with the old like club club legend miss uh, sort of in in charge of the club. Where Zenit have actually done the opposite, where they have went for the foreign coach and the big name of obviously before Semak, who is a club legend right now, and and that is actually to be fair to him doing brilliant with with Zenit. Before that was Mancini, Luchescu, Velasquez, uh, Luciano Spalletti, Advocat. Now this is the first permanent Russian manager that Zenit have had since. Ooh, 2002, I believe, which is Boris Rappaport. So it's it's a very long time, yeah. and it, it's interesting that they went the opposite route to that. And the, the funny thing is about Philippe Clement is that I I actually largely remember him most for a spell at Coventry under Gordon Strachan in the late 90s. <laughs> now, I don't believe it was very successful, to be honest. But I mean, it wasn't a Strachan, so let's not put all the blame <laughs> on him right there. <laughs> But it's I like I hear how you mentioned that the the wingers are very important to Bruce's side. Now, for the first game, Zenit's first choice left back, and frankly, who one of the best players of uh, since he signed is in Douglas Santos is is actually suspended. So either youngster Daniel Krugovoy, who, as the listeners know, is very exciting but very inexperienced, would be making his debut at this level, could deputise, or thirty-seven-year-old Yuri Zhirkov could get the Zimmer frame out and find his way onto the pitch. So who are Bruges' danger men and could anyone in particular take advantage of this situation in Zenit's defence? Yeah, I think Bruges will certainly be hoping it's Yuri Zhirkov that comes out. Although, again, like I, I was speaking, <laughs> we were speaking about this the other day. We were like, you you look at Yuri Zhirkov, you're like, oh, there's an old player, like not much pace left, like all that. But there's that know-how and experience. So you just can never really count these players out. But if he does play and he isn't on his game, and he does look like completely off the pace, then Bruges' best player this season, for sure, is has been a Kleprin Diata. He's 21-year-old Senegalese winger, who's just been, he's really good, really, really good. I think a simple way of saying it. Lots of people were kind of, when they thought of Bruges and like wingers last season, it was all about Emmanuel Dennis. Um, and he was linked with loads of moves yeah. over the summer, but he doesn't even get in the starting 11 at the moment. It's all basically the players through Diata, he is their like goal scoring winger place basically and um yeah he's probably their biggest attacking threat and I think without Douglas Santos I think that is definitely an area where Bruges maybe could have an advantage and could take advantage of. But outside of that you have um uh the the duo, the midfield duo Vanaken and former. Uh Vanaken is just yeah, he's one of the best players in the um in the Belgian league. He plays for the national team sometimes as well. Not first choice. He plays in like their friendly second string teams. But quality yeah. player, can find the net, can find a pass. Same with Vorma. Really good energy. They kind of like drive the team, get the team going, drive them forward. 
But again, I'm not too sure how effective they will be in the Champions League because they like to have the ball. They like to play make. And I just don't know if Luz are going to have that much of the ball. Um, mm-hmm. So I think another player, probably my favourite player that they've got is um, Clinton Matter. So he's an Angolan right back or he can play in a back three. And yeah, he won their player of the season last year. I think he won league player of the year as well. Quality defender. I think he's going to be key for them throughout this Champions League campaign. Like they kind of go how he goes. And him and Diata actually work really well in tandem, like pushing and pressing together and then dropping in, like going forward. So I think for this game, especially, I think Diata will be the key player. Um, we are slightly concerned on the podcast because um, Simon Deli is out as well uh, for Bruges. So he's one of their centre-backs, one of their better centre-backs yeah. as well. And when we look at Asmoon and Zuba, we're slightly concerned about having an experienced <laughs> centre-back against those two. Especially Zuba, he's like one of my favourite players. So I'm a bit, con- a bit concerned for them on that front. But Diata for us, for us, I'll say, I'll represent him for the moment. I think he'll be their main threat in this game. Yeah, I like how you mentioned that about Zuba. We we often um, kind of anachronistically and unfairly called Zuba a little bit of a blunt instrument at times. He, he does have the talent beyond that, but his sheer power, presence and know-how both back to goal and his sheer ability to find a player in an area, especially like Asmoon, the that they play off each other so well. It's a typical old school, even 90s big man, little man combination that yeah, just works yeah. very well. Uh, and on Jerkov, ironically, he's actually been playing probably some of the best football since he was at Siska uh, before he's moved to Chelsea. He's, he's kind of, he doesn't have pace. I mean, <laughs> anybody with pace will give him a bit of a difficult time, but he, he does that old Gary Neville trick of staying parallel with his man, getting tight. And instead of trying to compete for pace, he just uses his know-how and his positioning to kind of negate the pace a lot of the time. That being said, in the recent Spartak game, uh, Roman Zobnin tore him apart and he's very fast. <laughs> so you're not quite sure which Zhirkov you'll get. The one that's seeing a wonderful twilight towards the end of his career or the one that should already be in an old people's home in Moscow. <laughs> so whichever would probably be one of the big reasons as to how the way the game goes in the end. Now, if, if you mentioned quite a few Bruges players there, but from the outside looking in, one of the most recognisable names is probably fair to say is that of the goalkeeper, Simon Mignolet. Uh, of course, for the, for the RFN listeners, he came through a San Truden before moving to Sunderland, where he was a rock between the sticks, to be frank, and had a highly successful spell, which earned him a £9 million move to Liverpool in 2013. Now, Mignolet's time with the Reds was mixed at first. He had a, quite a few high-profile mistakes, which caused him to fall out of favour. So how has Mignolet fared back in his homeland, back playing week in, week out for Bruges? Yeah, he's been solid. He's been really, really solid, actually. Um, it, I think, definitely helped being at a side as dominant as Bruges. Um, so he hasn't got, like, tons to do during matches. But when he's been called upon, he's been good. Uh, he's been, yeah, really, really solid. Um, he's actually been starting, obviously watching the England game the other day you saw him like a friend of mine was like are they really still playing Mignolet like why is he still playing I was like no no he's been good he's good <laughs> like English I know we kind of get this thing in English football where like if a player doesn't do well in like one game like, oh, that's it he's a flop and I feel yeah. like Mignolet's kind of been put into that because he was at Liverpool and it's like that high profile but I mean he's done better than Carrius did he's done better than a lot of other keepers did um I think he's going to be I probably should have added him into the key 
players as well, just because he is going to have a lot more work to do in the Champions League than he did does in the domestic league. But I think for them, it's going to be really nice to have someone between the sticks like Mignolet, who he's played at the high level. He can organise the defence. He can organise like the young players in the side as well, like the people look up to him. Like I said, he's in the national team and stuff. So, yeah, no, he's been really successful in that first year back. And I think the moves probably benefited him quite a lot because, like you said, he just gets to play regular football. No one's really going to... He's not going to get dropped. There's no one that's really going to replace him in that sense. So it's kind of like a... Yeah, like a nice way into his twilight of his career. He's still only 32. So as a football manager fan, like he's reaching his prime. This is like the pinnacle (laughs) of his football manager career. So... Yeah, I've been quite impressed with him. I'm glad he made the move. I think it's I quite like it when players do that. They go back to like their home country and play for one of the bigger sides and just kind of like enjoy less of the limelight, I guess. There's less pressure on him, but yeah, he'll definitely be busy, that's for sure. I, I must admit, I mean, I as our listeners know, I am a Sutherland fan myself. So to see his struggles at Liverpool, where it was so high-profile mistakes, so many mistakes of the command of the area but it was surprising to see at the time to be frank because for us he was Mr Dependable and everybody knows how crap we were when we were in the Premier League the amount of shots we would concede every week and so on yeah he was a busy man and he'd probably put his foot wrong once in three and a half years so I must admit I was a little bit surprised and I'm not at all surprised to see him just being that consistent presence that calming presence at the back because that's exactly what he was for us and I 100% agree that a lot of other English fans, I mean, we probably are not guilty of this. We need to remember that life doesn't begin and end at the Premier League and that yeah. other, other leagues and other countries do exist. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I've got so many players on my list of like players that I rate who people think are absolute rubbish just because they didn't play well in like five <laughs> minutes of a Premier League game. Or Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a Reading season ticket holder and you'll see a player come on and have a bad first touch and a bloke behind you's like, oh, this guy's crap. He's rubbish. Get rid of him. It's like he's he's literally just come on. So yeah, that's that's definitely a bugbear of mine. And Mignolet, I think it's nice to hear because if some that Sunderland fans still think of him quite highly, it'll just be the Liverpool fans potentially that don't rate him. But he's a good keeper. He's definitely a good keeper. Yeah, of course. And to to move away from slightly of oh, a lot less happy affairs, that here in Russia we we dealt with the COVID nineteen pandemic by briefly stopping play for a number of months and then resumed at the end of June. Uh, All remaining games were played in six weeks and then we had a two-week break before the start of the new season. Uh, The fans were allowed in initially up to just 10% towards the back end of last season. And since August for the new season, it's been up back to 50%. Uh, But I believe Belgium's dealt with the pandemic in a totally different direction. Yeah, so Belgium pretty much shut the league down quite soon after the pandemic started to spread um and it was quite clear that Bruges had already won the league by then so that wasn't really an issue no one was kind of like debating that because they usually go into like like kind of like the Polish league and other sort of leagues do that kind of like they split it and then they have like the top half bottom half and they play off for like European places and stuff like that but they just completely scrapped that this year uh, last season they were just like there's no point doing that um Bruges have won the league and the side at the bottom uh Vazan Beveren were so poor that they were just like, okay, you're relegated. But then that caused so many issues and that was an absolute cock-up nightmare of like them protesting because they weren't actually that far away from being safe despite being really, really poor. So for them, they were like, we could have stayed up. Like financially, this is important, blah, 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 blah. So eventually the league decided, okay, you can stay. 
then the two teams that were in the promotion race were like, okay, well, hang on, what's, what's going to happen to us? Because I'm not going to dive into the wonderful world of the second tier in Belgium. But basically, <laughs> if you finish first from like, these are like last year's rules, if you finish first, you don't get automatically promoted. So they split it into two stages. If you win the first stage, you are you qualify for the playoff. And then the other team that wins the second stage also qualifies for the playoff. Two-legged affair and only one of you will go up. So you could be the most consistent team and the best team, but finish second in both stages and you just would never get promoted. Um, so yeah, ran over about that. But yeah, so they had these two these two teams were then the day before they were meant to play the second leg, were told that they were both going to be promoted anyway. So we have these extra teams in the league. And it was just a complete nightmare. They'd already done the cup draw. So these guys are playing like the second tier cup draw thing. So it was, it was a massive, massive mess in the end. And it culminated in, at the moment, Vazland are, I think they're second bottom and they're just as bad as last season. And old guy on our podcast, Yoris, is just like, he just calls them a waste of space, basically. <laughs> they just shouldn't be in the league. So that's kind of like how they dealt with COVID. So I think initially it was fine. I think everyone accepted Blues were champions. The relegation was a complete mess. Uh, they restarted up again in August. Um We've now slowly seen fans reintroduced in September. So it's kind of a similar thing with like sort of like 10%, very few numbers. Uh, we had a couple yeah. of issues. I know you guys have had some issues with kind of the ultra groups and stuff. There were a couple of ultra groups for us that didn't, like, I think the standard ultra groups were like, we don't want to come back until everyone can come back. A couple of other ultra groups just not wearing masks and doing all the singing. We had yeah. one game, I think in the second tier where there was like a last minute goal and the players ran towards the fans and the fans ran towards the players and everyone was just in it together. And then a ridiculous one that I saw was another last minute goal for the away, an away side in one of the games. And a fan like jumped over the, uh, the edge of the stand to run at the player and shout at him for celebrating in front of the home fans. Oh, Jesus. I was just like, what is, what is, so it's been a bit mental. And at the moment, cases are rising among teams, which has been a massive concern so I'm not too sure really where we're going to go. I think there could be a couple of cancellations on the cards. I think there's one team that today announced they've got like seven confirmed cases. So, yeah, it's it's been an interesting one, that's for sure. I think every league's got its own like stories, but that's kind of like where Belgium is at, at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that cancelling the league caused as much of an absolute mess than playing on did. Of yeah. course, in Russia, we ended up having a, only a two-week break. Uh, players didn't were, were in a bubble the entire time during that and didn't haven't a lot of them haven't seen the families in months. Uh, we all, of course had the well documented case of Sochi defeating the Rostov kids ten one because um, their bear issues are so bad. Orenberg missing four games. Uh, basically, the league shouldn't have restarted, but at the same time, it looks like it would have been an absolute mess to say exactly the same way had it not had it been cancelled last season. Uh, we also have had the same same issues with um, people not following the guidelines, not following social distancing, not wearing masks. I mean, any ultras area you will see, there's just zero social distancing whatsoever. Yeah. It's absolutely jam-packed everywhere. And even just last week for the Zenit Spartak game, the, the big derby game, uh, Spartak were investigated by the local health authorities for having a what seemed to be above 50% of the upper limit. Uh, anyone looking could see it was like 70 or 80%. It was almost packed in there. <laughs> and um, 
in the end, they claimed that the attendance was 17,000 out of 44, which was just absolutely yes, <laughs> to be fair. Like, it, was, it was well Amazing. over that. And then it, it's resulted in a, a local health authority's investigation at the local district court in Moscow, in which Spartak only just avoided a potential up to 90-day stadium closure. So it, I guess what we're trying to say here, like, a little way to finish off that the questions is that compared how the two com- countries coped and yeah. and that really it's there is no way to cope it's just dealing with the hand the best that you can yeah absolutely if we want to move on to one last question it's it's quite easy it's very very straightforward any bull predictions for the time next midweek uh i really wanted to say i think will win but i i just think zenit we're just going to be too strong for them at home i think without delhi at the back i'm worried about how they're going to deal with the strikers if they sit in encounter and Diata nicks them like an early goal or they score the first goal, I think they could hold out for a point, but they really need to score first. I think that is like the key for them in this tie. Because I think if they don't score first, they'll be up against it, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, does any two have a little bit of an issue where they do tend to struggle to break down a packed defence? Uh, the, the the only game they've lost this season when against was against Dinamo Moscow, who just sat back with ten behind the ball. Loco sat back. Uh, Ural they got a point away to Ural Ekaterinburg and, and the Ural Mountains, and once again it was a, a packed team. The only other game where anyone's took anything from them this season was Spartak, and that's the best two teams in the league just going head to head in a very entertaining game. So if Bruges have got a very solid foundation and can hit on the counter, perhaps in behind Jerkov with these hip replacements, then <laughs> something could happen. But I must admit, I, I do expect Zinni to win here. Maybe one or two goals if Zuba and Asmund are on form. Yeah, I, th- I think, unfortunately, I think that is the way it's going to go. But um, I hope Bruges can surprise me. And um, <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see what they do on the weekend in terms of lineups and stuff and who they rest. Because I think that will give an indication of kind of like what they're thinking about because I'm not sure if they'll run out with their usual lineup of attacking trying to dominate the play because I just don't think that's going to work to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I'm not quite sure on that one either. I think Zenit will go in into their game trying to dominate as they would. I think they will, to be quite honest, every game this in the group stages, even against Dortmund at home. Uh, that's just Zenit's game plan. That's how they always play. They've got that little bit of big club arrogance and they do have it quite a lot obviously with Gazprom and the size of the club and the, the way they are yeah. in the modern modern era That's just, it's the Zenit mentality whether it's right or wrong but once again Ben thanks for thanks for joining us um, everyone if you go listen to the Belgian podcast for all your fix and all things Belgian football uh, Ben's any socials or Twitter accounts or any websites or anything you'd like to promote um, yeah, so yeah, we've got a got a Twitter account. So if you search, yeah, if you search for the Belgian Football Podcast, you will find us on there. Um, personally, I write for Total Football Analysis and a couple of other websites and stuff. So you can always find me. I'm at BenJack94. So yeah, if you fancy listening to a bit more about Belgian football, yeah, please do check us out. We only started a couple of months ago, so we're all relatively fresh and new to this thing. So any sort of feedback, new listeners will definitely be appreciated. So Ben predicts a tough group and a tough game on Tuesday for Bruges. Richard, how do you see this one panning out? Any predictions? <laughs> Me and predictions, eh? Oh, God. Um, well, for starters, Zenit definitely have to win this game. If they're going to have any chance of getting through 
to the uh, to the last 16 of the Champions League, then they're going to have to win this game. Uh, it's at home, so hopefully it can um, act as motivation to get their campaign off to a good start. Um, I have a feeling um, that they might win this one. I mean, I know Zenit have not been brilliant in Europe recently. However, this definitely is an opportunity, isn't it? You know, first game in the Champions League at home against a side who I, I don't think are as good as as, um, as either Dortmund or Lazio. Well, you know, I think the, the, the you know Dortmund and Lazio are definitely a step above. So, um, yeah, I think this is this is an ideal opportunity for Zenny. Um, quite interesting couple of um, absentees, though. I read Malcolm's going to be injured for this game, the game against Sochi at the weekend in the league, and then the game after Bruges. So it'll be interesting to see how they tactically adapt to that one. And most notably, Douglas Santos is suspended for this game. So um, there are the two big question marks at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think I think Zenit will have enough at home. Um, and I'm going to start the Champions League qualification campaign regarding my, my prediction for the first game in the Champions League qualification campaign. I'm going to say a 2-1 win for Zenit, I think, is my prediction. Nice. I think that's what I went for with Ben as well. And David, how about you? Um, do I have to give a scoreline? I, th- I think Zenit will win. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Malcolm's not do. been in the best of four um, <laughs> anyway of late. He's not scored for like eight games, I think. Um, well, I don't. Jerusi's still out as well, so um, they they've been missing him more than I thought. So it'll be interesting to see how they get on without the both of them. Um, especially now they got rid of Rigoni as well. They're going to have to rely on. On Mostovoy and Yurokin, probably, I guess, as their as their attacking midfield pair. Um, so they're going to have a bit less to them than than normal. Um, but Juba on his day, obviously, Juba and Asmoon on their day should be enough. So I, I fancy him to maybe win one or two nil. And then, of course, later on in the week, we've got not just Zenit playing, but. On Tuesday, uh, Stade Rene versus Krasnodar in the Champions League Group E. On Wednesday, Loco are away to Red Bull Salzburg in Group A. And then on Thursday, our only Europa League side, Siska, are away to Austrian Wolfsburg. Not to be confused with the German Wolfsburg. So, Richard, scorelines, no. Results, we'll go on, we'll go results. But any predictions <laughs> for these? <laughs> um... I'll try and be optimistic with Krasnodar, even though they're stuttering a bit in the league at the minute. Uh, I'll be bold and predict 1-1. I'm probably going to have egg on my face at the end of this, but um, I'll be bold and predict 1-1 against Wren. Um, Lokomotiv, I really don't hold out much hope for them. I suspect I'm not the only one here. Um, I think Lokomotiv will lose 2-0 against Salzburg away. Um, it's a very tough, well, all the games are tough in that group, but yeah, I, I can't see Lokomotiv doing anything. I've Zero faith in them, unfortunately. Um, Suska against Wolfsburger. They're actually quite... Um, they shouldn't be underestimated, Wolfsburger, because it's, it's worth remembering that the Austrian sides have been doing very well in Europe recently, actually. The, you know, if they carry on this current trajectory, they could be ranked sixth in Europe in three or four years, jumping both the RPL and Portugal. So, you know, it's not just Salzburg who are picking up points for them. The, the, the sides are improving. And I think Wolfsburger actually beat Gladback last year in the Europa League. So they're certainly not uh, in one of their group games. So they're certainly not a side who can be underestimated. Um, 
I'll go with a very narrow Siska win, 2-1 away from home against Wolfsburg. But um, they're a bit of an unknown commodity, so um, I'm taking it um, with a pinch of salt because you just never know. And Siska didn't do very well last year in Europe either, but I will back them to just get the job done. And David, how about yourself? Do you think any of the Russian sides will get the win? Um, I think Siska are being on good enough form that they they should win. Um, you know they've been playing pretty well of late. The squad's pretty pretty strong. Everyone's largely fit apart from Devev, although Devev did play again over the international break, so maybe he'll be back in time. Um, Vlasic is on cracking form for club and country, um, so I think as long as he's on it, they, they'll be all right. Um, Loco, you, you know. <laughs> I think I'm with you guys on that one. Uh, <laughs> the less said, the better. And then Krasnodar is, is Krasnodar at home or away? Sorry, away to start running. Mm, tricky, tricky. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping they they don't embarrass themselves. You know, we 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 want Krasnodar to do well. It's their debut season in Europe. We know we know they can do well. Um, Ren are a bit of a gap in my my knowledge other than the fact that I knew they were top of the league not that long ago or maybe they still are um, one all does seem like a nice safe option to go for so uh, let's just say a Crestonar win then yeah I'm not going to be as optimistic to be frank I think local lose and probably not score I think Krasnodar will lose and probably will score uh, Ren, you are right. Ren are still joint top with Lille and have un- unbeaten in six. Um, Krasnodar have been pretty poor recently, in my opinion. Um, Siska, though, I do I do agree, David. I think they will. I think they'll win against Wolfsburg away, uh, and they have to, to be frank. With with the if they have any hopes of getting out of the group with other games like Feyenoord and so on, quite difficult games. But Siska have the quality to do so. I think I agree. Vlasic and and Chidera, as you care, good to be pretty instrumental in this campaign and I think that's why they signed Educa for the money is for the European success. So a move back to the RPL. There's been a new managerial appointment that was just announced earlier on today, I believe. It was in, it was yesterday, sorry, it was yesterday in Sandro Schwarz, the 41-year-old German. Now he is the former Mainz manager and also managed the farm club Mainz 2 before that. Uh, Current Dinamo sporting director Zelchko Buvac was his assistant manager at Mainz when Schwarz played as a player under Buvac and Klopp. And it's one of those where Buvac clearly won the battle versus the board and who reportedly wanted, who they wanted to take over from Kirill Novikov. Buvac wanted Schwarz, his hand-picked man from his former club in the league that he knows a hell of a lot about. The board wanted Berdiev, the safe option. The Russian Allardyce sort that defence out, get them playing to their potential. Now, Richard, how do you see this one going? And obviously Buvac won out in the end win this battle with the board. Well, yeah, um, we were all, we were, I mean, I'm, I'm still um, pleasantly surprised at this because I really thought when Berdiev's name was being mentioned that, you know, uh, once again, I thought the Dinamo board had won out, like what we we're saying on last week's pod. It was a similar situation to what happened at Spartak when the Spartak board wanted Chechesov and um, Thomas Zorn, the old sporting director, 
wanted Tedesco. Zorn won that battle and, you know, it's been onwards and upwards for Spartak ever since. Tedesco's really come on leaps and bounds this year. So, um, yeah, this is a, a big show of faith in Buvac um, by going for his pick and the fact that Buvac was able to convince Dinamo's, you know, conservative board to make this decision, I think is a real coup. Um, I've been having a look at Schwartz, actually. Um, there's a brilliant piece on on him from, when, from his time at Mines on a site called um, Total Football Analysis. You should Google Franjo Schwartz, Total Football Analysis, and you should be able to find it. Um, he was in charge at Mines between 2017 and 2019. Um, he was in charge for the entirety of the 2017-18 and 2018-19 Bundesliga seasons. And in 2017-18, they came 14th out of 18. And in 2018-19, they came 12th out of um, 18 in the Bundesliga. Um, just a couple of points. I, I've read through that article on Total Football Analysis, by the way. Just a couple of points to pick up from Schwartz. Um, his sides try, if possible, to play up from the back. However, they can also use long balls to the full-backs if risks are too great from playing out from the back. Uh, once they manage to find the central defensive midfielder, um, the fullbacks then have full license to get forward and attack. Um, there does seem there did seem to be at Mines an emphasis on um, midfield superiority, flooding the central midfield areas and pressing up with high fullbacks. And this preferred formation is a four-three-one-two formation. So I think Dinamo do have a decent chunk of uh, personnel to fit into that formation if he decides to play it, but. You know, I think Lezer, I think um, Lezervoy could be the attacking one behind the front two. You could perk Conley Chanko up with another striker, possibly Clinton and G, possibly Grulioff. Um, I think Szymanski, Morrow, and Fomin make a decent midfield three. So there's definitely the personnel there. And Scott Pintsev on one side is a good attacking fullback. They probably need a right back before the window shuts. So uh, there is the personnel at Dynamo to fit that that formation should he choose to go with it. Um. Yeah, this, this has a Tedesco-style appointment written all over it, really, because if you think about it, Tedesco had a good first season at Schalke, then was sacked the following year, um, and now he's rebuilding his reputation well at Spartak, and it was kind of the same with Schwartz. There was decent first year, better second year, disappointing third year, but, you know, he should not be um, written off after one poor year. You shouldn't do that with any coach. So um, I'm, I'm quite excited about this, actually. I think it's, um, you know, a progressive move by the Dinamo board. Um, you know, it's it's definitely I'm more enthusiastic about this now than I would if Kerbin Berdiev had got the job. I think Berdiev <laughs> at 67, far too old now, um, and I think this is a good move. And, and one last thing I will say is, is I mean, okay, he did end up getting dismissed by uh, Mainz um, Schwartz, but when you think about it, really, with, with Mainz, they've only been a Bundesliga club very recently. I think they only reached the top flight under the management of Klopp and Buvac in 2004-05. I think was their first season in the top flight in um, in Germany. So they're not really a big club. I mean, off the top of your head, you can probably name 12, 13 Bundesliga clubs more historical and much bigger than than Mainz in size. You know, just off the top of my head, I can name them. Someone in the second tier, like Hanover and Hamburg, for example. So. You know, really, they're punching above their weight, finishing even, you know, 10th or 11th in the Bundesliga Mainz, punching well above their weight. So, you know, Frankfurt are a much bigger club and they're right next door to them. So, yeah, I mean, OK, you got sacked by Mainz, but um, Schwartz, but, you know, it's going to happen at these smaller clubs. Managers are going to come and go. You know, they're always, they're never going to be consistently overachieving, barring, you know, absolute miracles with transfers. So, no, I think this is um, a positive move and um, hopefully he'll do very well. I'm looking forward to seeing what he can bring to Dinamo. Yeah, I, I likewise echo those thoughts. And it's interesting to hear you bring the parallels, obviously, to Tedesco. It's quite 
difficult not to see that going towards the German route. Uh, ironically, exactly a year to the day since Spartak appointed Domenico Tedesco. Uh, now, David, what do you think about the Berdiev rumours? Now, of course, famous for his time in Russian football, won the league with Rubin, uh, highly successful in the champ- getting Rostov to the Champions League. Do you think that Berdiev could have been a good choice at Dinamo Moscow? Um. Well, firstly, I'll just come back and say on um, on Schwartz, um, he, he's got two assistant coaches with him, uh, one of them being Andrew Voronin, who obviously played for Dinamo in the past. Uh, but I did notice that both he and Voronin were teammates for Mainz for three years early in Voronin's career. Um, so they, they know each other um, from their playing days. So that would be an interesting, um, interesting link up there between the two. Um, and you'd hope that Voronin will sort of help Schwartz adjust to, to life in Russia, which would be good. Um, I do I do wonder whether the Berdiev stuff was ever, was it ever actually true? Um, you know, Berdiev has a whole set of coaching staff who follow him to wherever he, where every club he goes to. He's got a very select group that he uses. Um, he, he would demand probably a very, you know, he's very picky over players. Um, yeah. As we know from it, from his time in, in Rubin, you know, um, you had guys like, I remember an interview with Moritz Bauer, uh, where Bauer came off half-time um, on like a training game. Birdie have said, right, here's 14 incidents where you were completely out of position. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> you can't imagine Birdie have coming in to, to a club like Dinamo who are trying to progress um, uh, and to take them to the next level. Um, you know, I think I suspect we probably won't see Birdie of manage ever again. Um, yeah, he he would need a very specific set of conditions uh, to to manage at any football club. Um, it needs to be a, a smaller club who he can implement his tactics well with, and, and he needs to have players there who he will trust to do that. Um, you know, he he depends very highly on one specific type of playmaker, which for most of his career was Christian Neboa. He took him everywhere he possibly could um, and was very successful whenever he did take him. So um, I don't think it would have worked if it was true. And I suspect it, it probably wasn't necessarily uh, true. And, you know, it's a punt to go on Schwartz. You know, it's, it's a guy who's going to have to adapt completely to a new culture. We, uh, I linked to you, to you to a video of him trying to speak Russian beforehand, which uh, uh, wasn't completely reassuring, um, <laughs> especially considering he was meant to be reading it out and he still pronounced some words wrong. Uh, so uh, we'll see how he gets on. Considering considering how well Tedesco, obviously Tedesco is a polyglot already. You know, he could speak English, German, and Italian. So um, yeah. presumably picking up a new language for him wouldn't so be so difficult. Um, Schwartz seems to be German speaking only, uh, and even his English seemed sort of a bit shaky on, on the video that I saw. So um, I think it's a it's a risky one, you know, to go for it just just because he's German, just because he's foreign, um, or or is there something else to him that that Vuvec knows? We'll, we'll we'll have to see. It's, it's going to be a tough job this year for him. Yeah, I also to be quite honest, always been quite skeptical over the Berdiev rumors. Uh, Berdiev's famous, as you rightly mentioned, for his total control that he demands in every aspect of the club from control of transfers to the nitty-gritty in the training ground to 
ex- imposing a style of how the team plays. Now, that simply, why would Dinamo go for that when they've already implemented Zalcico Buvac? They put a lot of money and time into getting Buvac. It took a, a very long time and a lot of negotiating, and they've given him full control. So why would he then suddenly take it away? It, it just didn't make any sense in the short nor the long term. And then even when you do, say, hire Berdiev, then it's just exacerbating the problems that you had under Kirill Novikov, where everything's just far too defensive, not getting the best out of these flashy, these solid attacking players. There is no issues with Dinamo's defence. There is no issues with their, their compactness, their organisation, and that's what you get from Berdiev. Of course, he was he was much more than that in his Rubian days, the first time. But the second time, he really wasn't. I don't know what you, do. You want to come in here, Richard, on Berdiev and Schwartz? Yeah, just to just to emphasize what we're saying there. I I I really just don't think um you know Buvac and uh, Berdiev would have got on. You know, I really think it would have been difficult because. Yeah. You bring Buvac in for this, and then all of a sudden you give a manager like Birdie have the reins, and then he suddenly starts wanting control. Buvac might start suddenly thinking, "Well, what have you brought me here for?" Then it's you know. So no, I think I think Buvac and uh, Birdie have would not have gotten on. It would have been interesting to see if there was any truth to that. Maybe it was just one or two sections of the Dynamo board, maybe just panic, panic searching, if such a phrase exists, trying to pick someone out right who's available da, 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 to take over from um, Novikov, but whether it really got any further than just a suggestion is um, open to debate. But yeah, I totally agree. I don't think him and Buvac would have got on at all. So I think this is um, a sensible move. It's still a gamble, but I think an educated gamble to go for a young foreign manager in Schwartz. So we'll have to see how it goes. Yeah, that's probably exactly why. It's easier to go with what you know. And Dinamo deserve every little bit of credit in at least trying to go for something different. Whether or not it'll work out, we'll wait and see. And that spells the end of this week's RFN podcast. Of course, check the site for all the latest and the goings on in Russian football. Uh, in the next week, we're going to have full previews in depth of all of the four upcoming European games. And then, of course, over the weekend, Dinamo themselves play Siska in the latest Moscow derby. Uh, David, where can everybody find yourself online? Hey, you can find me on Twitter at RFN underscore David. And Richard? You can find me at, at RichDPike89, at RichDPike89. There'll be some pieces for myself coming out for RFN soon. Uh, there's something that some ideas I've got in the pipeline. And I'm also a writer for some other sites too, so please do check out my work. That's been the RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет с ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечов Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет